0: so welcome to people with purpose today i'm joined by professor Damien hughes who is a, an international speaker a best-selling author and co-host of the high performance uh, podcast uh, which uh, he does with uh, with jake humphrey so uh, welcome to the show Damien.
1: thank you for having me david it's real privilege to be here
0: excellent i've always wanted to do the um the the, the, the damian david excellent well done there you go so that just, just goes to show that i listen to the to the podcast that's good so i've always always do that so thanks for indulging me in that little uh, that's uh, yeah. an
1: absolute pleasure
0: <laughs> cool cool so um what's going on what are you working on now
1: oh it's pretty full on at the moment to be honest david so um i'm just in the process of, of finishing a book um that's due out in december this year so we're in the sort of like the final granular details of it which isn't playing to my strength (laughs) Uh, and then we've got a tour that's uh, kicked off uh, the other night in london uh, in relation to the podcast and then got lots of recording dates as well so it feels pretty intense at the moment
0: cool okay well but hopefully good intense
1: yeah yeah very good yeah i think i've learned over the years that uh there's almost that if you think of it like a bell curve, there's that bit in the middle where you need it to be at the right level of stimulation and interest, but anything that goes over that is a lot of diminishing returns. So yeah, I think I'm just on the right side of that bell curve.
0: That's good. That's good because there's, a, there's a, I was listening to uh, Stephen Bartlett talking, um, and he was talking about um, the importance of keeping one one foot outside of your comfort zone pretty much at all times just to keep that 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 positive tension going in your life. Is that something you subscribe oh, right.
1: to? Well, that's an interesting one. Uh, I'd probably say not. I think I think there's times where you have to step both feet outside your comfort zone, and I get that. But I also think there's times where you just need to step back into your comfort zone and, and sort of take a deep breath and relax and process. So I'd probably... Yeah, it's an interesting one. I met Stephen myself the other night, so Hmm. I know he's somebody that certainly practices what he preaches, but I'd say I'm probably not that brave.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean and you definitely need that element of self-care. I, mean, I talk to quite a lot of people when they um uh, they're focusing on uh, you know a real mission and they've got a real goal. I mean it's, they're the kind of people that I talk to um but the risk of of burnout is significant and you just can't pour from an empty cup. So um oh, yeah.
1: I think yeah, I think like you you've articulated it far better than than I was doing David, but I think that's what I've learned over the years that I've come very very close to burnout on a couple of occasions and I think some of that has been through having that idea that you've got to constantly have your foot to the pedal Uh, you've uh, got to be outside your comfort zone pushing yourself all the time and I know some people can do that or have a different capacity but I think I've learned through flying a little bit too close to the sun uh, how far I can go and uh, I'm not so, I think a mistake is a mistake only when you repeat it, mm. and I think I've I have repeated it a couple of times. So I'm mm. trying to rise up a little bit.
0: Okay, yeah, know thyself. It's uh, yeah, it's adage to live by. So, um, you ask uh, on the high performance podcast. You ask that that opening question. So, what does high performance mean to you? Yeah. Um, so, um, this podcast is called People with Purpose. So I was going to ask you the question: uh, What does living with purpose mean to
1: you? Uh, I mean, I love the question. Uh, I think it's a really smart one. I'd say it's about uh, acting with with complete congruence at all times. So I think there's there's three things that I see in relation to purpose that is worth maybe dwelling on each of them, because I think each of them, you have to answer each of them to find that sweet spot in the middle. Um, it comes from the work, and I'm sure you've had this reference a number of times on your own billion podcast um, around um, the work of a guy called Dan Bootler. So Dan Bootler did this billion book, of Blue Zones, where he went to the areas of the world where life expectancy outstrips the, uh, the norm. And he looked at what was it that that contributes to that. Now, given the such, the diverse geographical spread, there's some areas where climate and diet and factors like that influenced it. But what he found was a common trend, was this idea of having a sense of purpose that lies at the heart of it. And he famously uh, adopted the quote from one of the Japanese communities of ikigai, uh, which is this sense of purpose. And there's four questions that relate to that. Uh, but there's three that I particularly focus on. So the four questions of Ikigai guy are what, uh, what do you love doing? What are you really good at? What does, how can you contribute to a community? And how can you drive wealth from it? And it's the first three that I probably spend an awful lot of my own time reflecting on in terms of am I living a life on purpose? Is, am I doing what I love doing? Am I doing stuff that plays to my strengths, and am I doing stuff that makes a difference to others? Um, and if you can answer yes for the vast majority of those, I think that then gives you that sense of purpose that gives you its own energy supply, gives you a sense of direction, gives you the ability to say no, understand where you set your, your boundaries, but also gives you that sense of, I don't want this to sound... Um, abstract, but also gives you that sense of higher, that higher purpose, that idea that you're doing something beyond yourself.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And I've got quite often find actually that um, part of the journey for me is, you say the sort of the, high, the higher purpose thing sounds a little bit highfalutin, but if without that kind of higher purpose or something bigger than yourself, there's a risk that you can become quite self obsessed and not necessarily in a good way so if i look at kind of my kind of you know my human needs for belonging and for respect and and for love and all of that kind of stuff that can become quite a you know introspective and um almost depressing state to get into without that kind of thing where actually it's about the contribution that you can make to wider society
1: yeah, definitely. I think I, I think belonging, like, it's an interesting point that you make there around belonging, because belonging's a two-way street, isn't it, that you have to contribute as well as to receive hmm. from from a, from a wider society, whether that's a family, whether it's a, a social group, whether it's a, a working organisation that you contribute to. There's lots of different tribes that we belong to. But, um, yeah, it's not just a... I think when you ask the question of how can I contribute to it, you, you're naturally going to take stuff from that group, but you're also offering something as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Two-way street for sure. So I'm interested then uh, in why it is you you pick the, the three elements of a Kigai but not the fourth. What, what is it about money that uh, that doesn't, doesn't turn you on or doesn't pull to purpose?
1: Um, the stuff around um, how can I make money from this um, – my instinct when I, first, uh, when I first came across that was it sounded a little bit vulgar. Um, uh, so I, I, I do focus on it, but it's very much if I had to prioritise, it's the last one that I try and prioritise. And that's not because I'm some great philanthropist <laughs> uh, that, uh, that doesn't have a mortgage to pay or anything like that. But yeah. I think that happens by, by default, if you like. But what was interesting was I, I was recently look, lucky enough on the podcast to sit down with uh, Hector uh, Garcia, mm. the man who wrote the Guy book. Mm. And I, I I I raised that as a challenge with him to say how that was mm. the one that sort of left me coldest of all. And what he did was he, uh, he came up with a slightly different variation of rather than how can I make money from it was how can I drive wealth from that? And I... I that seemed to resonate a lot better with me because the idea of the driving wealth isn't just about making money for its own purpose. It's about how can I help others, whether that's a business, create a healthier culture that helps them make them more profitable, that therefore keeps them in business, that provides for families a lot better. I quite like that. But if I had to prioritize it in terms of my own sense of uh, purpose, that fourth one about how to drive wealth is probably the fourth one
0: on the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And potentially an outcome of of the other three.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, but if you focus on it, on it, uh, I think the danger, and this is again a bit of a self-reflection, is I'm not always sure that's a healthy like what can like what's get measured is what gets done. And I don't always think that when you can sort of measure your effectiveness through using numbers to do that. I'm not always sure it leads me to the healthiest place.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And you need that balance, don't you, of of metrics, which... Which kind of takes into account? Yeah, there's that money is definitely a measure of the value that you contribute to the world for sure. That is definitely one measure, but it's not the complete measure. There's also the sort of the qualitative stuff. And you, from the research that you've done, I guess you've uh, you've had to work quite hard to be able to uh, compartmentalize or rationalize the qualitative uh, evidence as well as the quantitative
1: yeah I mean, it's a good point, I, but I, I'll give you an example in relation to the high performance podcast where say like when I hear the numbers that the, the podcast does in terms of downloads and and I I deliberately sort of switch off from that, and that's not because I, I I don't find them significant. It's just that I also think that the only thing I can really control is whether I can do the best job I'm capable of doing, and the download stuff is really outside of my control. So if that's where I wanted to direct most of my time and energy, I think there's always more you could be doing. There's always numbers that that are associated with it where and then I'm not sure the quality of what I do would be the best that I'm capable of. So I've just learned over time, I think, that if you do a good job, almost like there's that great quote from this from the older American football coach Bill Walsh of the score will take care of itself. Mm. But I think if you can focus on the areas where you can directly uh, contribute, like whether it's the like you'll get paid a fair wage for doing what you do, or you'll get the numbers that that it deserves, I think that's where I'd, I'd prefer to sit on that side of the debate
0: yeah sure sure and in a way that kind of fits with your your model of high performance that you've crafted from or well certainly the first 18 months of the podcast where you've got your, your eight steps and a key one of those is is playing to your to your strengths um i mean i guess i mean i've 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 Skim read the book, and I've dipped and dipped out, and it's it's well put together because it's got the kind of um, what do they call them pit stops and all that kind of stuff. So there's some really it's a really good practical book as well as being quite interesting to pick up the sound bites yep, from. Thank that. you. Yeah, no, it's 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 a, it's a really really accessible read um into quite a deep um topic, I guess at times. Um, but you know from um, I suppose the book i was I was quite interested in um how you would rate yourself on high performance and which of those elements do you find most challenging
1: well I, again, it's a really interesting question Dave i think I think what what i would what I'd suggest is worth doing at the start is to almost define what is high performance in the first place because we've done nearly two hundred interviews now with High performers from across the world of sport, business, and the arts. And the interesting thing is, we haven't had a consistent answer to our opening question of what is high performance across them. And that is interesting, I'd argue, because I think that what that says is that forces you to define it on your own terms. Like we recently interviewed uh, Maro with you, the England rugby union player, and he was the first guy that gave us a distinction between high performance and world-class performance. So his point was world-class performance is a set of independent measures that say you have to, if you're a world-class sprinter, you need to be running a hundred metres in less than 10 seconds. But if you're an amateur sprinter, high performance might be running it in 11 seconds. So, but if that's the best that you can do. So, This was an area that I debated for a long time of what is high performance and when I was writing the book the publishers were asking us to give a definition and the answer came inadvertently not through the interview but through a casual conversation that we had with uh, Phil Neville who was at the time the England Lionesses head coach and uh, it was in a hotel that he owns just opposite Manchester United's ground at Old Trafford uh, I'm not sure if you're aware but during the pandemic, he opened the hotel for free of charge for NHS workers to come and stay. And while we were having a cup of tea, I commended him on what he'd done there. And he gave me just this lovely quote that I found out is also attributed to Theodore Roosevelt, which is, he said, I think in life, you've just got to do the best you can with what you've got in the moment you're in. And I remember thinking, that's such a brilliant articulation of what high performance is because those three sentences allow every one of us to access our definition of high performance. So the best that you can do might be different than mine. The moment I'm in might be different than yours. You know, the resources that I have to hand are different than anybody else's. So it forces you to come up with your own subjective answer to that question. And, That's where I tend to focus. And so I suppose it goes back to your purpose question at the start is rather than focus on the numbers, ask yourself in any interview, have I done the best that I could with the resources that I have in the moment that I was interviewed the interview? And if the answer is honestly, yes, I think I have. Well, nobody can ask for any more than that. And you, more significantly, you can't ask for more than that from yourself either. So that's really where I, 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 I start this from. Um, and that's where I, the, it lies at the heart of everybody's journey to define that. And I, and, but I think that's beautiful in its own way because it stops us getting caught up in the comparison culture that so much of life tends to offer us. You know, we interviewed a lady called Vicky Patterson on the podcast who made her name on reality television. And she taught and made some pretty flawed choices. But t- when she explained the rationale behind doing them, you know, she was a young girl. She was impressionable. She was on the cusp of a nervous breakdown herself at the time. So she had this great line where she said, you know, we have to stop comparing our behind-the-scenes behind footage to somebody else's highlight reels, that it's easy to get caught up in seeing somebody's numbers or what looks impressive. But instead, I think that quite, those three sentences that I just shared with you, I think that is a far more empowering place to start our own journey from.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I also um, uh, got found myself, uh, in fact, it was my mum who asked me um, a question about, about competition. Uh, and, oh, yeah. and she said, she said, she said, w- will you do an episode on competition and how people in business feel when, um, when when people, you know, kind of rob their ideas, copy their products, nick their customers, all that kind of stuff, oh, yeah. and how to handle that. And I, and I found this... Um, I've, I've always had this kind of belief, really, but I found this quote that um, from a personal point of view that said, um, so competition and comparison uh, can be good, can be bad. But the most important thing, really, it, to compete with is it's not about competing with other people. It's about competing with the person that you were yesterday. And I find that, oh, I like that. I find that quite a powerful um powerful way of thinking which then led into a whole uh, other sort of set of kind of thoughts about how that can apply in your personal life from the point of view of, uh, yeah, competing with yourself, you know, you look to other people as, as a reference point and for inspiration, uh, but not as a comparison as such, especially in this kind of Instagram type world that we live in but also yeah, from, a, yeah. from a business point of view you know if you're if you become too preoccupied with the competition um then potentially you take your eye off what the, what the things are that you need to focus on to improve and drive performance in your own business or team because you've got your own individual set of circumstances to focus on
1: i love that I think that's really powerful i think that it reminds me of a conversation we had with uh, the american author mel robbins on this topic where she's researched it and she reframed envy. She said, don't sort of deny envy, but explore it because it tells you that 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 there's something that somebody else has or is doing that really matters to you. So the danger is if you're copying them, that's a problem. But if you envy somebody, you say, well, what is it that they have that I don't? And then you ask the question of, oh, so how... So how do I get my version of it? So you keep the authenticity and the integrity true to you. Yeah. But it might be something that somebody else, a rival, is doing that you think, oh, actually, I think I could do that. And I think I could make that slightly better or I could do my own spin on it. Yeah. So that was really helpful for me to understand that envy is a, a negative emotion if it's harnessed correctly. mm mm-hmm. I think where it's dangerous is if it if it leads you to then want to to mimic or to ape somebody directly. I think that's where it can present the problem.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Because people people will tell, especially trying to get a message out there, and that whole thing about authenticity, especially as we're in an increasingly digital world, being authentically you, and people need to be able to respond to the human that's inside or behind, uh, you know, the kind of the, the persona. So, so yeah, so that's that's really really. Really, really crucial, and something that you know, I suppose, takes me into a um, a kind of an area that I was thinking about um, asking you about because there's a lot of um, worry amongst the kind of um, psychological uh, fraternity. I don't know how best to describe them really, but you know, proper psychologists about yeah. um, you know pop psychology and and the, the potential uh, dangers of people taking bits and pieces of theories and and then applying them to situations and and that potentially having you know more harmful effects than positive effects and i guess um, like what for example well oh, just, so. just 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 take, just taking somebody else's theory and applying it and just trotting it out there as three steps to this or five steps to that and and that potentially right. leading people down down the wrong track is that is that not something that you've heard about
1: no i'm not familiar with it but I'm interested in it i can see I can see why it why it would set some alarm bells ringing. In. Yeah, I'm just interested in in understanding a little bit more.
0: Yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, well, I guess I guess from my point of view, the way that I've evolved a way of thinking in business and in relationships with people and getting the best out of people is yeah. by um, doing a fair bit of reading and and research myself, and then tra- taking a model, trying it out. Evolving it, tweaking it, rejecting part of it, um, reading something else, pulling something else into a framework and evolving that kind of, so I've got, I've kind of got my own model now, right? Some of which has probably been created by me, some of which has been built on by, you know, the the, the, the IP of other people, you know? So if that works in a kind of a business context, then from a psychological and behavioral point of view, it is it also valid to to work in a similar kind of way?
1: Ah, right, okay, I see what you mean. I think, I don't know, I'm I'm wary of anything that offers a silver bullet of an answer to anything because how can you offer a silver bullet to a context you know nothing about or an individual or a situation that you know nothing about? So I think that you're right to be, to give it pause anything that offers you this three steps to happiness or something like that because how do you know anything about the person that you're advising that to so I think being curious is great and being open minded but I think curiosity then says well go and explore it go and delve deeper into the topic like pull that thread and see and see what else you can discover about it and I love the idea that you can reject stuff. I think one of the most powerful things you just said there, David, was the idea that, well, I'll take that, but I'll, I'll reject that idea because that shows that you're thinking about it and relating it to the context that you're operating in. Like, we interviewed Adam Graham, the brilliant organisational psychologist from Wharton, who's, who, like, one of his books is about rethinking. And I think in our society, we get caught up in the idea that Say like if a politician says, I used to believe this, but now I believe, I used to believe X, but now I believe Y. We see that as a sign of um, a, a, of a weakness of character. When actually it's a sign of intellectual rigor that I've got more information to hand now. So I held a different point of view than I did before. So we don't often celebrate the idea of uh, sort of intellectual flip-flopping, when the reality is that I think that's a sign that you're looking and exploring and challenging your own thinking first of all so and a lot of these ideas like the three steps stuff that you describe it can be helpful that they often have their their origins the roots lying in some decent research on this but then when you pull the thread, you go, well, well, actually, that research has subsequently been debunked or there's been more information that that provides it. So say, for example, the Carol Dweck, the growth mindset stuff, I, I I think that can often be sort of thrown around quite liberally without necessarily people looking at, well, what else did Carol Dweck say and how else do we actually do it? Because it can often be a lot more subtle than just saying, that somebody's got a growth mindset, and somebody's got a fixed mindset. You know, it, it's more, it, it's more nuanced than that. So, I agree with you to a, uh, to an extent, but I also think that coming up with your own version of it and the context in relation to your own life is fantastic. And I think that's what a lot of these researchers and these great minds that I've been looking enough to meet that have these theories and models, they'd actually encourage that rather than. Uh,
0: Rather than discourage it, mm-hmm. and um, that also I suppose um, th- there's something that comes into play quite strongly here when it comes to leadership, because um, leadership is a is is a well the world the world needs great leadership now probably more than it more than it ever has. Uh, people going back through history may have a different view but we're in the we're in the present so that's kind of that's kind of what this base what my view is based on um yeah. but having having that kind of that vulnerability if you like and that and that that openness to being able to say well look my mind has changed or i got it wrong or um whatever i think um is is really really vital and and dancing between those kind of um directive mentoring Uh, uh, techniques if you like or practices and the um, the coaching open questioning type techniques to sort of tease things out it's vitally important to to get the balance right I mean what advice would you have for um, leaders in in businesses or leaders of teams when they're looking at how to get that balance right between coaching and mentoring
1: oh wow that is a good question I think I think that there's three lenses that I'd view leadership through. I think, first of all, there's a, le- a leader needs to have the energy for the task that they're embarking upon. The second one is they need to have the intelligence. And what I mean by that is to be able to speak with credibility on the topic that they're that they're leading a team. There's a certain amount of credibility that we want from our leaders. But then the third one is, do they act with integrity? So, and I think... What I mean by that is that we don't follow hypocrites. So if you take the political landscape in the UK over the last couple of years, take during the pandemic, our leader, during that, our political leader, Boris Johnson. was uh, You heard the reports like I did that at the start of the pandemic, he supposedly made the comment of let the bodies pile high in relation to care homes. But that comment, if it happened, took place behind closed doors and we don't understand the context. So that wasn't enough to kill his, his leadership prospects. What was it that killed his leadership prospects that had him removed from office? There was a very clear evidence of hypocrisy. When he was on record on TV telling you that you couldn't go to parties, and then we saw the evidence of him socialising at parties. And that's a really good example of where as a, as a species, we don't follow hypocrites, people that are deemed not to have acted in integrity um, is abhorrent to us because our very survival depends on it. If you go back to the way that we're wired primi- from our primitive brains, you don't follow somebody that's going to lead you into a bear trap. So I think when we start with that premise of being really clear about who am I? What do I stand for? What are my values, and how does that relate to my behaviours? I think that's the most important bit because then it then equips us to say you can play the role of being a coach of being a mentor because their skill sets, their competence sets. But if you're doing that, but your behaviours are consistent, and I can see your values in action, I think that then allows you to to start to go and access and play different parts for different different individuals as they need it so i don't know if that answers your question david but i think they're the they're the lenses that i think leaders should think about is energy intelligence but the most important of them is the acting in integrity and then that gives you the the platform to be able to go and be a coach be a mentor be a directive leader and use all those different leadership styles as someone the yeah. lead arises.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I suppose another one of your uh, of your of your eight steps in high performance is uh, is get flexible. I guess, and and so I suppose that applies in this situation.
1: Well, the idea of getting flexible is yeah, exactly. So one of the things that we spoke about there was that one of my favourite questions I like asking any individual you meet is not how clever are you, but how are you clever? Because <laughs> everybody's clever in different ways. Yeah. So some people are are physically gifted, some are verbally gifted, some are socially gifted. We all have access to what Howard Gardner, the educational psychologist, described as multiple intelligences. So the idea is that everybody's intelligent, but that will manifest itself in lots of different uh, manners. So what we found in so many of our individuals is that their, their brilliance has only emerged when they found what their natural intelligence is. So, I'll give you a really good example of the business that did that was when we sat down with Joe Malone, the entrepreneur. Joe Malone came from she grew up on a uh, down in Kent. Uh, she came from a broken home. Her father had uh, was a bankrupt. She was dyslexic, that was never diagnosed. But given the family uh, straightened financial circumstances, she was going working on market stalls and the local beautician. So she was often exhausted when she came into work. And because of all those factors, her teachers wrote her off as being thick and lazy because they'd see her struggling in class, didn't know she was a dyslexic, she'd be yawning when she came in because they didn't know she was working uh, in the evenings and weekends. So in one context, she appeared to be uh, lazy and thick. In a different context, when she described she met her husband, they discovered that she had this brilliant latent talent of taking different ingredients and being able to create these fantastic-smelling concoctions. Now that doesn't show up on a report card. Mm. But she then took that latent that 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 way of her intelligence manifesting herself and structured her whole life around it. So to come back to the the living a life on purpose, her whole business was then spent saying, How how do I get this talent of being able to create these fantastic smelling fragrances and structure a whole business and a world around it? Mm. So that's what we mean about being flexible, of not just being caught up in the idea of traditional measures of what, um, of what intelligence looks like, but to be flexible and see it and how it can manifest itself in other different ways. Mm-hmm. And then having the flexibility to understand that I'm good at this, but I'm not good at this. So another entrepreneur interviewed was Holly Tucker, and Holly said, she's brilliant at like coming up with creative ideas for like not on the highstreet.com and Holly and co, the businesses she created. But she said, what rubbish are is detail. So she linked up with Sophie Cornish, her business partner, who that's her intelligence, being good at the detail and the structure. And she said the combination of both of those required flexibility, but it allowed them both to thrive in their own environment. So that's what mean when we talk about flexibility and I suppose that's what I'm talking about there about being flexible. That If, if mentoring is what you're good at, go and mentor. Mm. If coaching is a different style, acknowledge it and say I can, you know, I, I can get better at other areas but there'll be something that naturally plays to your own superpowers. Yeah, yeah,
0: no, that's really helpful. So, so which guest has most surprised <laughs> you on High Performance and why? Which
1: guest? Has um, most surprised you, yeah. Yeah, I'd, to answer that, i I've talk about another incredibly inspirational uh, woman that we met was Dame Stephanie Shirley. Um, so for people that don't know the name, I think it's almost like a stain on, on UK society that most people don't know who she is. I think she should be on banknotes and taught in classrooms that... She was a 19-year-old lady that came over at five years of age on a kinder bus, so she lost both her parents in World War II and she was fostered by a British family, where going back to this idea of recognising what your superpower or your strength is, was, well, she loved numbers. She had a real aptitude for, for maths, but being a young woman in sort of post-war Britain at the time, that wasn't necessarily encouraged or nurtured. But her, parents, her foster parents... Thought to get her access to this kind of teaching. Long story short, she set up a business in the early 20s where she changed the name to Steve because she couldn't get a bank account as just a uh, plain old Shirley. So that were, uh, became possible. And then she set up a business uh, that predominantly employed women working from their kitchen tables. Um, and it was making what we know today as like the black boxes for aeroplanes. I'll fast forward several years, but she ended up um, building a a business that was eventually worth £2.4 billion that she spent the last 30 years giving away the vast majority of the wealth that she earned. So she was the first person to fall off the Sunday Times rich list because in her late 30s, she gave birth to a son that was severely autistic and she described to us how she'd had a breakdown at the time, but... She ended up having to put him into um, what we'd know better today as like an asylum. And she said the conditions for her son were abhorrent. And she was so moved by that that she's given most of her wealth away to found uh, a number of charities for autistic children to have conditions that they deserve. Now, I'm only giving you a synopsis of her life, but to sit down with... Somebody that has uh, uh, that has kicked down doors that so many of us walk through today and take for granted just felt humbling yeah. in the extreme, and I'm ashamed to say I wasn't that okay with her story before being lucky enough to meet her. But it, it sort of, i don't know—I often think that when you can meet somebody that genuinely has changed the game, that has changed the world through living a life on purpose. Mm. It can often feel incredibly humbling to be in the company, and Dame Stephanie Shirley definitely fitted that 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 criteria for me, Dave.
0: Wow, wow. And so meeting all these people who've got such high standards and and in from different, different walks of life, and you know the evidence of success, and something again you talk about is the fact that success leaves clues. And um, what has that done for your own personal uh, development?
1: Well, it's been like one of the great privileges of my life to have the opportunity of sitting in the company of some of these incredible people and getting to ask them questions. I think it had almost been possible not to have learned so many rich, incredible stories from them. Um, but I think the one that i take away is the power of humility that lies at the heart of, of them. So you can... I'm sharing with you some of the details of some of these incredible people and then people, well, what have they got in common? What are the traits? I think the one that really stands out for me is one that we're all able to access, which is humility. And what I mean by that is that I think of humility in three stages. So the first stage is you have to get over yourself. I call it peak idiot stage where you have an opinion, you've got a judgment, you've got, you, like, you've got a little bit of knowledge that you think goes a long way. I wouldn't do that. That's not how I do it. So it's like when you see people sort of watching a sport event and they say, Oh, I'd have done a better job than the athletes out there. It's peak idiot stage. You wouldn't, but you don't know that, you don't know how good they are to appreciate how far away from good you're operating. Yeah. And I think the faster you can get over yourself in that way, you get into stage two, which is the valley of humility. And the value of humility, if it could characterize it, it's by being curious. It's about being open-minded. It's about asking questions. It's about trying lots of things. It's about failing at lots of things. And then it's about reflecting on lots of things. And the longer you can spend being comfortable with the discomfort of this stage, the more you get, the more knowledge, skills, experience, knowledge, wisdom you acquire that gets you to the third stage, which is the hill of knowledge. So most of our guests occupy a place on the hill of knowledge in their industry, but they don't then claim that because they've been successful in one domain, that automatically means they'd be a success in another domain. Mm. Do you, you know what I mean? Like I, I don't know about you. I, I've met lots of people that say maybe have been very successful in a business, but then they've got really strident opinions on politics or on sport or in other areas of the life that you go – Just because you've been successful in it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be successful in others. Mm. And I think the best people that I've met have got that humility that they ask as many questions of us as we ask of them. Yeah, you know, they talk about well, what did they say? So doing what you're doing of having a podcast where you're curious to go and explore other areas and other topics is a great example of somebody with that humility that seems to be a consistent trait in so many of the guests I've been looking up to meet and it's a really good reminder to stay humble
0: yeah yeah well and th- thank you for saying that and um it is interesting that you say that because I, I in- interviewed um uh, Phil Phil Dolman who's uh Exeter Chiefs fullback for oh yeah a decade and um he, um, yeah, well, you know, he, he scored, scored a try in a in a championship playoff final, or the the kind of kind of won won the premiership for them, and all of those kind yeah, of yeah. things, um, and uh, you know, called up called up to Wales and, and everything else. And he, yeah, and he he he's so, such a such a humble man, you know, and he talks so much about luck uh, in his yeah. life and in his career. And um, and I actually kind of you know pressed him a little yeah. bit on on luck because he said it a few times it was sort of towards the end of the interview uh, because I felt yeah. it was worth drawing out that you know so well, what's the view you do know, you create your own luck in life and is it luck or is it the, the willingness to take a risk because he definitely took some risks you know moving his family from for you know for, well okay it's not all across the world but from from Wales to another part of the UK yeah, and, yeah, and of all course. of that so um so yeah but that humility is um yeah it's, it's a beautiful thing when it, when it works. And again, from a leadership perspective, people will follow, um, a leader who comes with, with humility and, and authenticity. Absolutely.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a really underrated virtue because it's almost the absence of something rather than the presence, mm, mm. but, but you know, when you're in the company of genuine humility, just how powerful it is. Absolutely.
0: And you might have already answered this question, um, but um, I was also keen to understand uh, which guest that you've spoken to has cut through a complicated issue with absolute simplicity and made it really easy for you to to get what they were talking about.
1: Um, well, again, a lot of them have, but I'll I'll give you the quote from some of reference so far Adam Grant. So when we sat down with Adam Graham, halfway through the interview, he said, do you ever ask for feedback? Have you guessed? Some we were like, not really, no. And he was like, why not? You, in the presence of some of these great minds, why wouldn't you ask them for feedback? And then he gave us this great line. He said, a lot of people hesitate to ask for feedback. He said, "But well, there's a really simple 19 word introduction that when you ask these 19 words, you'll get, you can offer and give great feedback. And the 19 words I would say I've got incredibly high standards, and I'm really confident that you're capable of meeting those standards. Can I offer you some observations? And he said, "Who doesn't want to say yes? To that? Who isn't open to feedback on the back of that?" So what you're saying is I, I think I've got, I you know, I've, I I I've got incredibly high standards, but I know you're capable of meeting them. So it opens up the possibility that I'm not telling you that you're not doing a good job. I'm saying that you could do an even better job. Yeah, And so naturally you create a positive momentum in terms of how you deliver that. So that was a really nice way of framing how do you deliver feedback in situations. So think about, you know, if you've, if you're ever in a restaurant and you get poor service, if you were to say to the, the, the staff in that restaurant, I've got incredibly high standards of what great service looks like. And I know you're capable of this. Can I offer you some? it's not aggressive. It's not confrontational. It's just a really proactive, healthy way of doing it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that because feedback is vitally important. Uh, So, um, so yeah, cool. Okay, good. So um, can you um, tell me if, if in your, if in your book about high performance, you've, you found these eight steps, um, if there was a ninth,
1: what would it be? But it's interesting because I think what we did in the book was uh, we almost, we, so we distilled the lessons from our guests and looked for common traits. And I think if I was to give a summary of the book, it's almost like, how do, you, how do you build a racing car that's capable of high performance? I said to you in the introduction, I've just finished, um, I'm in the process of finishing the book, and the best metaphor I can offer is, now I want to offer a sat-nav for where you need to go in that high performance car, Hmm. give you the route and the map to follow. Um, And I think that's what I'd argue. I think that was to me what stood out that I think lots of people are capable of high performance. And when they read the book, there's an awful lot of common sense in there and helping people translate into common practice. But I think the bit that most people then yearn for is, so what do I do with this? And I think helping people to understand the questions that you're asking about what, first of all, is your, is your sense of purpose? What is success on your terms? And those ikigai questions that I use, I think are helpful for other people to answer it in their own definition. The ability to reframe a problem, because you're always going to inevitably experience a setback or a difficulty. The ability to be able to frame that in a healthy way is great, so again, I interviewed, I was incredibly lucky to interview um, Lindsay Burrow and I wanted to interview Lindsay for a long time because her husband Rob has become part of the national consciousness here as, uh, he was a brilliant rugby league player that has been diagnosed with motor neuron disease and yet Lindsay um, has cared for him Joe, and her three children during this and what Lindsay was billing her doing in the interview was helping us reframe the problem. She said, This is obviously utterly devastating. But she gave us a manifesto for life, a living in the face of death, if you like, you know, the ability to see the positives even in the bleakest of circumstances, the ability to appreciate the small things rather than get distracted by the big things, the ability to smile even when your heart's breaking, all of those. Characteristics are things that hopefully we never have to face anything as serious as what she's doing. But she's sharing with us that mental gymnastics that any of us are able to adopt for a problem in our lives to be able to overcome it in a really healthy, constructive way.
0: Mm-hmm. And I have to share. I mean, as you've, as you've mentioned it. I mean, I interviewed uh, a gentleman called uh, Paul Jameson, uh, who's who's also um, uh, uh, b- living now w- with with MND, um, and um, uh, unusually, it was his it was his ability to speak that went first, rather than his ability to to, to walk and and move and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and uh, and he he said uh, he said something which was interesting, which is uh, which is we're all. We're all born with a with a terminal uh, illness uh, it's called life yeah. <laughs> um, so so it's, so it's about making making the most of it and they've actually set up a company called aura uh, to help people to um, him and his son and, and a friend of his son's they set up a company called Aura to help people to uh, to contemplate end of life, prepare for it, plan for it, and all that kind of stuff. Because wow. um, it well, is. What's
1: he called? Sorry, I'm just making a note. Paul, Paul,
0: Paul, Paul Jameson. Paul Jameson, and and the book. He's, he wrote a book called "Very Much Alive." Uh, and it's incredible. He he. Um, his his bucket list um, was 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 incredible. You know, he sort of cashed in a life insurance policy and and all that kind of stuff. And he, um, he he's got the world record. I think it might be an unofficial world record for the um, highest altitude game of tennis on top of Mount Kilimanjaro. Oh right,
1: okay. I've just made a note of his book. There, I'm going, to,
0: I'm going to read that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a brilliant book. Such an easy read as well, and it's a really really good. Um, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's almost like a playbook for uh, preparing yourself for, for such a thing even if you don't have to, you know, because you never know what's round yeah. what's around the corner. So um, so yeah. So okay, so, I mean and one thing that I'm I feel very passionately about is time and making the best uh, use of time and um, I'm conscious of your time. So I've just got a couple more questions to go. That's okay, Damien. Sure.
1: Mm-hmm. If that's right, I need you to off PayPal Crosspass. That's that all f- right.
0: That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, so um so so Time is all we have, but we often act as though it's kind of this infinite infinite thing. Um so if yeah. if you if you knew you had just one year left to go, um yeah. what would you do?
1: Wow. Uh stop me in the tracks with that one. Um I'm tempted to say not a lot differently, because I think I'd be trying to live life on purpose and I think if, if I could do something differently, I'd, I'd already be doing it, if that makes sense. So I've got two young children and uh, I was prompted to answer the question, but fortunately not through having um, a terminal illness or anything like that diagnosed. But um, I think COVID was really good for me. I've, I think I caught myself up in a delusion of thinking that being away, travelling a lot, provide it. And and I I had this really easy excuse in my head that I was doing the best I could for my family and I was providing for them and it really mattered. And then COVID sort of forced me to spend my time at home and the impact on my relationship with my two children was really quite significant. And it allowed me to strip away the bullshit of my excuses that I'd been used in that. My kids didn't care about me being away from home. They just cared about having time to talk to me, for me to be there and to, and and just to be present in their lives. And that was powerful enough that it removed the excuse I'd been using for a long time before that and forced me to do something different. So if that hadn't happened, maybe I'd have said oh, I'd spent more time at home and with my family, but I think... I, I've been trying to do that a lot more regularly than I would have done. So I don't think I'd spend any more time with them because I think that I'd be a bit maudlin if I knew I only <laughs> had a year left. But yeah. I think carrying on doing what I do, but having that healthy balance and perspective uh, would be, because it. my work gives me a lot of pleasure as well. Yeah, yeah.
0: And it is an interesting, it's an interesting question that I reflect on, probably once a year, because you know I've written my own obituary. I, fi- I find that is quite. Um it's quite helpful. Again, it sounds like quite a morbid thing to do, but it's quite quite well, helpful as a as a reference point to be able to look back, um, and um, yeah, that's quite quite empowering. Uh, it, so it's, it's got to be done with the right with the right spirit, and it helps you to think about okay, so if time is the main asset that you've got and the most precious asset that you've got, how are you going to allocate that asset to get the best return? And um, yeah, it comes from um, okay, well, what what would you love and and following that.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I, I don't think they do that much differently, which I hope doesn't come across as arrogant. Um, I, I suppose one thing I would do is I'd probably write down, it, it'd probably force me to try and capture somewhere the lessons that I'd want to leave behind for those that, for those that would be left. I'd, I'd probably do that if there was one thing different.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's also very interesting because that's one of the bits of advice that Paul Jameson gives uh, in his in his book, which is uh, you know don't write your own eulogy, but write a life story, you know, because that's yeah. that's really really powerful. Awesome. Okay, cool. And so um, I guess. I'd also before before we conclude, like to ask you um, a bit about your inspiration. So, so what is it that in your in your past, in your life, in your family that that has inspired you to make the decisions that you've made and to follow the the path in life that you have so
1: far? Well, I did, so my story is that I grew up in um, in um, a boxing gym in the north of Manchester. So, um, my dad was a boxing coach long before. I was even born so all my early memories are being in the boxing gym in the boxing ring uh, being around guys that went on to become Olympic and world boxing champions so I think I often talk about the ghost of our childhoods rattle around our adult bodies and I think when you look back I think in my world there's two factors that have really influenced me my, my life hugely, one is Around my interest in high performance because I was around guys that were pursuing high performance in a really tough competitive sport. But well, the second one was about the power of culture because maybe some of your listeners, Dave, have got like a like a mental model in their head of what they think an inner city boxing gym looks like or the kind of area that 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 spurs uh, that uh, spurs that kind of thing. It's often areas of high unemployment, deprivation, social dysfunction. And that was, I suppose, without being disrespectful, where I grew up, um, describes some of the challenges of those areas. But the boxing gym was an oasis within some of those difficult environments where people could come and be seen, be heard and be respected. So the power of a culture to create high performance is are the two areas that shape my life, that my in and piqued my interest, that has led me to go and explore them at a deeper level.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. And what advice would you give somebody um, who is um, who thinks they got a bit of an idea about what their purpose or their passion for their life might be, um, but they're they're not quite sure how to take that first step to go after it? What advice would you give somebody like that?
1: Um, Shrink that step to be as small as possible. So, I think, um, like I recently interviewed James Clare, the author of Atomic Cabots, who said, You know, the heaviest weight in the gym is the front door. So, it's the idea that just going into that gym is the first step, and that's the, the, the step we can all take. You know, don't if you want to write, don't write a paragraph, just write a line. You know, it's almost like every take. Shrink it to its smallest possible variation, and then often you'll be surprised at the momentum that is generated by just taking that first small step. Fantastic, fantastic!
0: And um, what would you like to conclude our conversation with? Any final messages or, or or key comments you'd like to make?
1: I think the final message I'd say is to say thank you. So it's a message of gratitude. I appreciate you being kind enough to ask me on, but I appreciate you being committed to do this podcast and, and I'm grateful for you being brave enough to pull that podcast out into the world. Um, so I think it is to say a thank you to you in many ways for all um, and to express my gratitude for lots of different things that you do and the difference that you make.
0: Oh, Thanks Damien and uh, back at you, been great to have you on, a uh, real, real privilege um, and thanks also for sharing both your story and also the stories of others, going kind to of make a real difference to people. Um, how can people find out more about you and follow your work if, they, if they'd if like to do that? Sure, so
1: uh, I I have a website called liquiddinker.com um, that if people want to find out more about the High Performance Podcast or the tours that we're doing or... Uh, The podcast that we put out there, uh, those details are on that website. So if people want to do that or if there's any questions that maybe have been prompted by being kind enough to listen to this, please feel free to drop me a line there. I'll get back to them as soon as possible.
0: Awesome, and so yeah, so um, highly recommend High Performance as a book, um, and I will be uh, getting to one of the uh, high performance lives myself for sure. I've got my—I think it's either Oxford or Cardiff. I've got my eye on. So, uh, so yeah, so it'd oh, well, be um, brilliant to see that. Yeah, fantastic, Damien. Look, really appreciate you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for listening to People with Purpose. I hope you've enjoyed the show and are enjoying going on this journey please remember to like and subscribe and give us a five-star review uh, tell all your friends and if you're interested in finding out more about any of the things we've covered in this episode of people with purpose just get in touch all the details in the show notes thanks bye